All right, uh, so what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to start off with a statement, and then uh, we're going to pray, and we will get going. Uh, this, is, this is my statement to begin tonight. It is that God is not dead, but Christendom is. So let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for being a God who saves your people, who comes and redeems and reveals. And I ask that we would uh, begin to people, be a people who understand the, uh, the way that you've created us, uh, that you created us uh, to be a people who are naturally made to worship, and we continually do that throughout our lives, uh, whether we realize it or not. And that in understanding that worship you created us to do and to be, uh, that we would notice the worship of the world around us and be able to speak into those contexts in ways that make a whole lot of sense. Amen. Oh, dude, see on the video, are you praying? You're walking right down the aisle. I just came to the big back of Jonathan's head. <laughs> uh, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, this is kind of what we're going to come back to a few times. Uh, Paul says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And this is kind of what we looked at first week in this whole idea. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sum up Paul's thing last week for you really simply. All right? So you're like, I just got totally lost last week. I'm going to totally sum this up. All right? I'm going to do it in terms of light bulbs. I'm a professional, I can make this happen. Okay, uh, pre-modern. Okay, a pre-modern mindset would walk in and look at the light bulbs and say, wow, it's great, we have lights, isn't that wonderful? Now, it's not that uh, they didn't you know, really care about anything else, or they were stupid, it's just they really enjoyed the light and just thought it was wonderful and it was great to be there. Now, a modern mindset would come in and they would say, wow, so how do light bulbs work? You know, what's the filament? How's electricity get there? How's it run there? You know, it's, they think through all of those things, and so that's a modern mindset. Now, a postmodern mindset would come in, and they would look at the light bulbs, and they would say, oh, I really feel like I like the light of this light bulb. Oh, but I really, in this room, I want 100 watts. Oh, but in this room, I want 40, because 40 feels very soothing in this room. And that's a postmodern mindset. It's more about how it feels. I like how this feels. And then once you get to a post-postmodern or a pre-pre-modern, which is the whole idea of oneism and paganism, it no longer becomes about that. It becomes more and more about worship, which is everybody needs this type of light bulb because it's good for the environment, because we worship the environment. Okay, that's that's kind of the whole thing. You can do this with everything. You can do it with cars, right? Uh, a pre-modern mindset would be, uh, aren't cars great? We don't have to walk. We get to drive around. Cars are wonderful. And then a modern mindset would be, well, how's the car work? How's the engine work? How's everything function? Is it a rotary engine? Is it a four-cylinder, eight-cylinder, six-cylinder, 12-cylinder? Is it a Viper? You know, what what is it? You know, and then a, and a, and a postmodern mindset would go, I really like the way this car looks. I really feel that red speaks to my inner soul. And so I'm going to buy me a red car. You drive around and say, I love being in a red car. Oh, I don't want to ride in black cars because I don't like black cars. I like red cars. That, that kind of thing. That's a postmodern mindset. And then a post-postmodern mindset or a pre-pre-modern, a monistic mindset would say, you all need to drive a Prius. Because it's good for the environment and we worship the environment. It all, in the end, comes about worship. Now, uh, in evangelicalism today, we are fighting a war on many fronts that involve this idea of pluralism that we talked about in week one. And then in all this pluralism comes down, to, comes down to ideas of sexuality and a whole lot of error and a whole lot of compromise. And so, again, we're hoping by the end of these 
four weeks of Element U, you'll have a coherence to be able better to filter through everything so you can understand our culture better and how the gospel relates to it better. Now, I'm going to give you some Genesis review as we walk through this because it's very important to where we're going tonight. So Genesis 1-1 starts off, in the beginning, God what? What did God do? Created, exactly. The scriptures start with the distinction that there is creator and there is creation. God works through his creating days. It culminates and then in Genesis 1.26. And it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, God is using the language of us and our. This is our first representation of the understanding of the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. God says he will make us in his likeness so we would rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and the creatures of the earth. Genesis 1, 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So our God is creator, he is pre-existing, he is self-sufficient, and he creates us in his image and likeness, and when God makes us in his image and likeness, he bestows upon his people a dignity, but he also bestows upon, Mike Harmon's texting you, <laughs> over and over, <laughs> can I put that on, hold on. I'm getting distracted. I'm sorry. It happens, okay? Uh, So he bestows on us a dignity, but he also bestows on his people a humility. A humility. Now, the root of humility actually means to know your place. It is why Genesis starts the way that it does, so we would know our place in the scheme of things. In humility, it understands that we are beneath God, but we are above lower creation. We are above the animals and the plants and the fish and the mountains and and the trees. We occupy an in-between space. And confusion comes when human beings are lifted too high and we think we are God, or we are pushed too low and we think we're like earth kind like we talked about in week one. Humility means that we know our place. And so what is our place? Well, the scriptures tell us that we are image bearers. When God uses the words image and likeness, Luther, Calvin, Augustine, all essentially say that that means that we are mirrors. We are mirrors. God is glorious. We are are his image and we are to reflect and mirror that glory by showing forth his goodness and greatness to all of creation. It is his glory, our our joy, and others' good around us. And so our job as Christians, if you're a believer, is to show, to reflect what John Calvin says is to make the invisible God visible. And so when God is held in this position of glory, it means that he is weighty, he has substance, he is essential, he is prominent. John Piper says that God is our treasure. Now, Harold Best, in his book, Unceasing Worship, offers a definition of worship that reflects this image-bearer status. And this is what he says, we were created continuously outpouring. Bam, slide number one. And this is, this is not continuous outpourers. We weren't even created to worship because that means, that would mean that God was missing something. We were made, we were made this whole idea that we were made to worship. Not created to, but made to. It's part of our makeup. It's not the only thing that we were made to do. And he says, it is strategically important, therefore, to say that we are created continuously outpouring. We are created in that instant, imago Dei, meaning the image of God. Our God is marked by unceasing outpouring from eternity past.
Son, and Spirit are unceasing in their outpouring of love, communication, adoration, and affection of one to the other. So God makes us in His image and likeness, and so we are outpourers, and our outpouring, outpouring is always unceasing. So we are worshipers. That means that we are living and we are mirroring to the glory of a person, a thing, a, a car, a sports team, a cause, a status, an experience, whatever it is, we are outpouring towards something. He says, worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. So to be an image bearer, again, you are a worshiper, and we are to worship as spirit-filled worshipers. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, and that is like a living soul. The man became a living soul. And so this is where the Holy Spirit is placed into mankind. And it is God's intent in his creation that we would bear his image, that we would worship him, that our unceasing outpouring would be to his glory, and mankind would be priests in the earth, the temple. And in Genesis 3, what happens is sin enters the world, and mankind goes from worshipers to idolaters. From worshipers to idolaters. We go from the truth to the lie. We go from a distinction between God and creation and God and mankind to a oneistic mindset. We go from assuming, I ate the tree, I can be like God. We go to assuming that we get to be just like him. Now, in Genesis 3, Satan says to mankind, you can be like God. Now, by virtue of being created in the image and likeness of God, we already bear God's likeness. We don't need to do anything to get it. We, all, all, we had all we needed to make this God known to the rest of creation by virtue of being created in his image. And what happened is mankind believed the lie that we weren't like God, but that we could be. And in that, we sinned. And we transferred from becoming worshipers of God to becoming idolaters. We transitioned from the truth to the lie that we can do something to be like God. And distinctions became eradicated. Now, our culture today is trying to get rid of all distinctions. We talked about them in the first week. It is a result of the fall, which I tried to show you in that first week of this series. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2, again, you see God is a God of distinctions. God separates light from dark. He separates water from land, day from night, men from women, mankind from animals, and God from mankind. And this idea of Paganism and oneism comes in, tries to obliterate all distinctions, so everything becomes one. All religions, all people, all beliefs. Uh, there is no clear distinction today in a lot of the things you watch on TV or read in books or look at in magazines. There's no distinction between God and mankind and mankind and animals and mankind and the rest of creation. And so you have this idea that everyone is now worshiping together, you know, the, the, the oneest God, because we are all one and part of it. There is no distinction between God and creation, men and women. Uh, this is, again, all kinds of alternate sexualities. It's why Lindsay Lohan can go from cute masketeer to bisexual craziness, and no one ever bats an eye. It is, it is why you can have Christian artists get on the radio and TV and talk about lesbianism and nobody even really seems to care because there is no distinction anymore between men and women. And this all ultimately leads to the place of there's no distinction between Jesus and other religions. But our God is a God who distinguishes and separates. Now, yes, our God calls us to be a people who are joined together in unity. It is unity of worship of, of him. Okay, We become one people, but we are still distinct in who we are. The lie tries to get rid of all God-given distinctions and ends up being all about sin. What you have to understand is the idol is the object and sin is the worship act. And so there is continued in God's people, no matter where you are on the spectrum of belief, there is always continued unceasing outpouring. 
But when it is not geared towards our creator, it is geared towards the lie and not the truth. It is for created things and not the creator. In the church today, we are dealing with the effects of this idolatry in people because we think we know just as well as God what is right and what is wrong because we simply feel it. Oh, I feel this is right. I feel I want to do this thing. Oh, I feel this is right for you. What does your heart say? And so we're running into all kinds of issues. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 7, 8, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And he's referring to the people in the Exodus when they uh, were walking through the desert. He says, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is pagan revelry. Uh, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. And in verse 14, he says, Therefore, my, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And what Paul is doing is getting to the root of the issue, which a lot of modern theologians and counselors don't do because they have been infected with the lie. Okay, Today, uh, you don't go to a store and find a section on idolatry. You go to a, a store and you find a section on food or overeating or drinking or the Alcoholics Anonymous manual. And what Paul says is that the eating problem, the drinking problem, the pervert problem is ultimately the result of one problem. It is the idol problem. That's the problem. And we've got to deal with the sin in us before we can change the culture around us. And so a lot of our focus today in a lot of churches becomes behavior modification. It is, re, it is not regeneration in the blood of Jesus. And this is why you get a lot of preaching and sermons become what Christian Smith calls therapeutic moralistic deism. And this is that God is very far away. He wants you to be good, so he's going to give you nice words to live by. There's no savior, no redeemer, no deliverance, just behavior modification. Eat less, drink less, keep your spirituality somewhat respectful. Sexually try to do your best to keep yourself from spinning out of control, and you're going to be okay. But the problem with that is people are unceasingly outpouring. We are worshipers. Everybody is. Everybody on this planet is a worshiper. We are created to unceasingly outpour. And so gluttony is idolatry, and being a drunkard is idolatry, and fornication and friends with benefits is idolatry. Adultery is idolatry. Pornography is idolatry. Substance abuse is idolatry. And the world we live in is passionately committed to outpouring itself for created things and not the creator, God. Everyone is worshiping everywhere all the time. All the time, everyone is worshiping. But, you know, who are they worshiping and what are they worshiping? And not, the question is not if, it is what they're worshiping. And as image bearers of God, we are continuing, continually worshiping. Now, uh, Tim Keller uh, comments uh, on the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard's book, Sickness Unto Death, and he writes this. Sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to, is seeking to become oneself to get an identity apart from him. Most people think sin primarily as breaking divine rules. But Kierkegaard knows that the very first of the Ten Commandments is to have no other gods before me. So according to the Bible, the primary way to define sin is not just the doing of bad things, but making uh, making of good things into ultimate things. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship with God. So as fallen worshipers, we become idolaters. It's in our culture, and it's in all of us. We cannot say that, oh, I'm not an idolater, because we all are at some place in our lives. And I have to start there, or everything else we're going to talk about tonight doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, we're going to progress from where we started the first week and, and last week uh, with you know modernity and postmodernity, and then this week, idolatry. This is the essence where we talk about in Romans one twenty five that they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised 
Amen. Okay? It boils down to two views and two ideologies. This is what uh, sociologist Peter Berger calls two plausibility structures. This is the truth or the lie. And so when you have a conversation with somebody in our culture, you have to understand that they are created to be unceasingly outpouring. And so when you, when you try and make judgments in your head about some of the crazy stuff they're doing, they don't believe in Christ. They're doing what comes natural because they are out, uh, always outpouring. They're unceasing outpouring. The lie uh, is that we should you know, worship and serve created things. The truth is there is a creator who is to be forever worshipped by those of us who were created. Now, uh, the truth based on studies uh, is very interesting when you look at what people believe uh, today. Uh, most uh, people in churches today are more closely in line with paganism than they are with actual uh, Christianity and Jesus Christ. That's kind of the whole idea of the stupid summer. We try to boil down some of these ideas for you. Uh, the, the average American claims to be Christian today. Uh, the Pew Forum is a research tank that studies religious and public life in the United States of America. Uh, there's a, a web address at the bottom of your notes, or at the end of your notes, that if you ever want to go to the Pew Forum and look up all the research, research it's all there. Uh, these are some things that they have studied in the recent years. 92 percent of all Americans believe in a God. Uh, Sometimes that's upwards of 95 percent, depending on who and when they ask. Uh, That, again, is more people than say they brush their teeth every day. Amazing. Okay, it's like, (laughs) great. 70 percent believe in many religions lead to eternal life. 55 percent believe in a guardian angel. 52 percent believe in prophetic dreams. 67 percent say they have had a spiritual experience with angels or demons or visitation from God. So the average American is very spiritual. Uh, it's kind of interesting if you know what the new atheists are today when you read all their books and they're always quoted on, on a whole bunch of news programs and stuff. They get a lot of press, but apparently they're not getting a whole lot of followers, which is kind of funny, no matter what a high school or a college professor wants to make you think. Uh, the average person in America is highly spiritual. Now, how about those who actually claim to be evangelical Christians? We believe in the Bible, Christians. Okay, 20% believe there is spiritual energy in mountains or trees. You heard me right, right there. That's the lie, that God is part of creation, that God can be found in created things. 16% believe in the evil eye. So if I give you the stink eye, I can curse you, right? Uh, 20% believe in reincarnation, even though Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for man once to die, and after that to judgment. Uh, National Survey of Youth in Religion, uh, 77% of all young adults believe in God. 58% of those say they are Protestant. 16% of those say they are evangelical. Evangelical, we believe in the Bible. We believe in Jesus as God. We believe, okay, all the things. Of those who say they are evangelical, 74% believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father. That means that 26% who say they are born-again, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, evangelicals, don't think everybody needs it. That's what it's saying. Okay, 51% strongly disagree with moral relativism. And I'm, I believe Paul might have talked about that a little bit last week. That means that 49% of Bible-believing Christians strongly agree with moral relativism, which is essentially, I strongly believe that you cannot strongly believe. That's moral relativism right there. Opposition to being. Uh, D.A. Carson once said, one generation believes something and fights for it. The next generation assumes it to be true. The next generation questions it. And the next generation denies it. And this is kind of what you're seeing. We're coming full circle now to a lot of questions and then denial. Uh, Fifty years ago, you had some young evangelicals that come on the scene like G.I. Packard and Billy Graham and John Stott and Francis Schaeffer. I like to call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You know, and after them, because of what they did and the changes they made in the American church, there's a lot of assumptions about theology and a lot of assumptions about doctrine. 
And then after that, people start to come out with questions and say, well, we're not denying what they said. We just want to question it. We just want to have all these questions. So they question the authority of Scripture, the nature of sin, the atoning work of Christ, uh, the, the requirement of saving faith in Christ. And now today, many people are just ignoring it or denying it and doing what just feels good. People will say, well, my faith just kind of works for me, but it's private. And so it may not work for everyone, so it shouldn't be public. And that is why there is a, dis, uh, a diminishment of evangelism. There's, there's a diminishing of boldness for the name of Christ. And I also believe it's why oneism is beginning to take root in the church. And really, this shows up more and more in the younger, more liberal people who uh, end up in churches today. Uh, they are pathetic givers. They really are. They love spiritual experiences, but they don't really like informed theological instructions. Uh, now, there are exceptions. Uh, Element does a really does, does a job trying to get people to understand theological convictions and the necessity for it. And I'm glad a lot of you younger guys are here because that's, that's great. It's amazing. Um, you know, but the evidence suggests that there's a whole younger generation of evangelicals, quote-unquote, who are going to be required to financially and theologically carry the baton of the church into the future, and they are a hopeless mess. They are a hopeless mess. Uh, Tom Brokaw once called uh, a previous generation the greatest generation. I think once that generation is gone, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. I really do. And I think that's because the lie is so prevalent and the lie is so powerful. And again, that lie is that our faith is not to inspect and affect our views, our sexuality, our morality, other religions, our behavior. And so we, we just kind of believe this lie, and it gets involved in every portion of our lives. In some places, we're really committed to the gospel of Christ. and other places, well, I don't really feel like it really needs to be that strong there. And so we make all these distinctions. I believe George Barna calls uh, the current generation the mosaic generation because they can parcel off all these different parts of their lives and not have the gospel infiltrate and affect everything in there. Now, why does this happen? It's because we are unceasing our pourers. Uh, if we don't worship the one true God, or we are unclue, unclear about who he is, or we don't take the time to get to know him, we will worship something else. Gary Laterman, who's a non-Christian, he is the chair of the Department of Religion and professor of American Religious History and Cultures at Emory University. And he says, if you take the traditional concept of religion out of American culture, you can easily insert three things and see how paganism has become prevalent. This is a non-Christian who says this. Uh, again, paganism is the ideology. Idolatry is the activity of that paganism, how you think towards your idol. Now, there's religious idolatry. This is worship of created things. These are a system of thoughts. You make certain things sacred. You have certain sacred places. You have spiritual idolatry. This is like a vague general spiritism. Um, uh, CNN had a recent study where they showed that most young people you know, like to say that they're spiritual but not religious. So they don't ever join any team. It's just this unmitigated experience. That is the hallmark of paganism. You don't need Jesus, the one mediator between God and man. And then there's cultural idolatry. And this is what we're going to look at. Because, again, we're looking at culture and how this comes about in it. If you take any concept of God out of our our culture, and you just look at our lives, what do you see? Because you follow the passion, the enthusiasm, and the money, you will find that we are unceasing, outpouring pagan people, worshiping things that God has made and not God. So again, we're going to spend our time here a little bit. So I want you to look at our culture and cultural idolatry so you can identify these things and look for the marks of cultural idolatry and the sacred truth that people think is there. And so this is what it looks like. Uh, you have an overarching myth or story that defines life. Okay, So that's number one. Secondly, there's a community that gathers around that myth. And thirdly, there's sacred rituals they undergo as worship acts. Now, 
example number one, one of the great myths that defined the American culture for a very long time was rugged entrepreneurial spirit, rugged individualism. This is like every movie Sylvester Stallone has ever been in. It's like the same story. Right? Almost every movie Russell Crowe has ever been in. It's like the, the same story. And we love that story in America. Personal triumph. One person rises up to make a difference. It is deeply rooted in modernism and narcissism and individualism. Community gathers around these things, online and actual. I'm going to buy me the Rambo knife. I'm going to buy the Rambo gun. And everybody starts buying all the bandanas and buying the T-shirts. And I'm going to learn how to eat what billy goats would eat because Rambo would do that. And people start to do these things. Uh, the Internet you know, allows all the Trekkies to get together. They allow those who worship a band to get together, those who worship TV shows to get together. It's all worship. Time is given, money is given, passion is given, life is given, unceasing outpouring. Okay? Then there are sacred rituals. Sometimes it's in the way you dress. Trekkies, right? You can pick them out of a crowd. Uh, they learn the hand signals, you know, live long and prosper, you know. Bam, I can even do it. You know, Zachary Quinto, when he started, he was like, oh, I can't even do that. He had to, like, learn how to do that when he played Spock. And he went, I see, and if you even know what a Vulcan is. It's like, I don't know what a Vulcan is. Exactly. That's, that's what I'm saying. Uh, there's certain languages. Hip-hop culture. Nicki Minaj. I got, you got her fans. We're the bees. Pardon me, I'm talking about whatever. Okay, uh, there's you go out and you'll buy certain products, you'll buy certain clothes, certain coffee. In San Luis Obispo County, all right, I'm just going to step my foot in it right now. All right, if you don't bring a bag to a grocery store, they fine you. They fine you. It's church discipline because they are very religious about recycling. It is justification by recycling is the official position of San Luis Obispo. If you don't bring a bag to any store, you are publicly shamed. Oh, you didn't bring a bag. No, I, I didn't bring a bag. We're going to charge you for a bag. Okay, you know, next time you should bring a bag. Okay, next time I'll, I'll bring a bag. You know, I, you know, there are sacred rit- rituals. Okay, I will repent and I will bring the bag next time I go. And usually everyone, if I go there and I go into a line, because I never remember to bring a bag, right? There are people behind me in line, they have their bags. They're pulling them out of their hands. They're very self-righteous. I mean, they, I mean, if I'm in line in front of some guy, some guy's behind me, he's pulling out a bag to show, oh, I know what the proper worship ritual is. I have a bag, and they walk to the front. I mean, they're barely legitimate bags, like hot and cold bags, right? I, I got all the bags. And he rode a bicycle to the store because he really cares about the environment. He has a bicycle and bags. I got no bags, and I got a gigantic truck. You know, I don't know. I mean, and the oddest thing is even if you do go and you do buy a bag, like even in Santa Maria, I mean, apparently if you go to Trader Joe's, you better bring a bag, okay? And it better be a Trader Joe's bag, by the way, when you go in there. And I mean, and if you do buy one of the bags, you will still get judged because you didn't buy the right bag, the good enough bag. And the, all the real environments only have this item, this type of bag because all the other bags, those are reposers. You know, you got to have the real, the right bag. I mean, I think they're like bag Pharisees. They claim no, it's no religion, but it is religion. And don't misunderstand me. I like the environment. I like air. I like it's nice to breathe. You know, those kind of things. But there is a myth that defines life. And that is that the environment is our mother and good people ride bikes and they bring bags. There's a community that gathers around that myth. Oh, that's a nice bag. You're holy and righteous and good. And then there's sacred ritual. You pull out the bag. You honor the bag. You shame those who don't have the bag. And if you don't have a bag, you're the Antichrist. Right? Here. You laugh. That's perfectly normal to some people. Perfectly normal. 
So I'm going to give you some categories, all right? Uh, I'm going to start with this premise that we are made in the image of God. We are unceasing outpouring and that we are worshipers and that either we worship the God of the Bible, the truth, or we worship created things, which is the lie. So I'm going to look at through the lens of worship and idolatry, one is and twoism. Okay, film. Okay, so let's talk about film. You ever wonder why people go crazy over Harry Potter and Twilight? Right? It's like, what's up with that? Everyone's on the bandwagon. Grown men will wear a Twilight t-shirt. Grown men. What happens is there is a myth that defines life and sacred rituals come around that. Harry Potter fans, Star Wars fans, they'll dress up and camp out all night. Grown men will dress up like Wookiees and wizards. All right? Grown people... How about this one? Who's that? The Avengers. I want to hold gloves. Don't we all want to hold gloves, right? It's when you, when you go to movie theater, it is like a church. It gathers outside of a temple. You go inside, you get your sacred narrative and their Bible st- story. They're a community. They gather together. They know, the, they know the sports everybody in the movies are trying to do when they fly around and hit balls with a stick kind of thing. At college campuses, there are people playing the game made up in Harry Potter. And I'm not saying a movie is a sin or, or watching movies is wrong, but for some people, it becomes the meaning of life. People went out, and they were trying to commit suicide after watching Avatar because that wasn't the real world, and they wanted it to be. You know, my life makes sense because of this community, because of this movie. Sometimes it's just an online community. Sometimes it's LARPing. Sometimes it's the gathering, a communal identity. Rocky Horror Picture Show? It is a worship gathering. It is a church that gathers together. Theaters are churches, cathedrals, mosques. They give their time, their money, and it makes sense of their lives. Science fiction. Science fiction is a religion. Have you seen cosplay or Comic-Con? Right? I'd like to go to Comic-Con. If you want to take me, fine, I'll go with you. But people dress up like characters. I wouldn't dress up as a character because I'd feel stupid. But they dress up like characters. And they have all this role-playing, all these different identities. There are storylines that provide meaning to people's lives, and they undergo sacred ritual. How about music? If you put the worship title on music, you know, can you do that? Of course you can. The lead singer is the shaman or the priest. You've got the bar, the club, the stadium. That's the church. Everyone gathers to sing the songs as a worship act. Girls want to give themselves to the lead singer because he's the one who brings about the altar state of consciousness. And people say things like, these songs, they change my life. These songs, they make sense of my life. It spoke to me when I was down. Now I'm a fan, and I like them on Facebook, and I bought the T-shirt, and I got the concert tickets. And they proselytize, and they will come and give you that CD. So you will go away and listen to it and like that band too and buy the T-shirt and like them on Facebook. And all of these, it's all worship acts going together. And if the band breaks up, it's a full-blown crisis of faith because their God just died. What just happened? How about when the Beatles broke up? Oh, my goodness. Go back and watch some of the footage of, like, girls like, Ah, the Beatles broke up. They're a band. They play instruments. How about Elvis? Okay, look at Graceland, right? You watch some of the specials sometime about Graceland. Many pagans, they're highly superstitious. They believe that there are certain places that have more power than other places, and they got to go there to get the God power. So they go to places and have a supernatural experience. That's Graceland. Elvis sat on that couch. Elvis got food out of that fridge. Elvis went poop on that toilet a lot because he had problems. 
and people cry because it's like their saint died. And they're going to the holy place in the shrine of remembrance. The Grand Old Opry, the Whiskey A Go-Go in, in Hollywood, there are nothing more to shrines to bands that have played there. And, this, and don't think that Christianity is immune to this. There are, there are some charismatic Christians who believe that you go to the graves of some dead people to get anointing from the bones. That is nothing but paganism and sacred ritual in the midst of paganism. See, the trick is that idolatry, idolatry comes in and it tries to make some good things into gods. That's what it does. Music isn't bad. Movies aren't bad. Sports aren't bad. But they can become an idol. And we in our culture have made them idols. So let's talk about sports. Do you think sports is that a favorite pitch of religion? Of course it is. Listen to sports talk radio. It is religion. You go to the stadium. A church meets together. They dress a certain way. They cheer in unison. Some people won't go to church because there's a game on or it's just soccer season. You know, I, cycling. Okay, I, I have a bicycle. I like cycling, but think about this. You got a bunch of young urban professionals who can't have fun all day, so they start cycling. It's for exercise. Okay, great. I, I don't mind that thing. It's great. But if somebody's car breaks down, like, oh, I got a flat tire, they can't make it to church that day, right? But but they can hop on their bike and cycle 20 miles in the other direction. See, it's all about what is speaking to us and our hearts. It's all paganism. Soccer, okay? Soccer in South Africa is huge. It is huge. They're dirt poor. AIDS is rampant, you know, but, but soccer is the god. If your team loses, you know, you pray for resurrection. They would come back the next week and they would vanquish their enemies. Uh, a few years ago, the, there's got some new murals now in the airport, but a few years ago in Johannesburg Airport, they had a mural of a soccer stadium and a rainbow coming out of it. Now, the rainbow wasn't meant to symbolize gay pride. It was covenantal blessing. It was heaven on earth because of soccer. If everyone in South Africa, if everybody comes there and goes to the stadium, spends their money, then we can be saved. Not from Satan, sin, and death, but from poverty because money is God, and it has arrived. Uh, let me, let me, this is from the World Cup in 2010. These are just some of the, the paintings they made for the World Cup 2010. All right? Okay, how about this? Wait, wait, wait. America. How about that? Huh? You Americans. Huh? Seriously. See, places are spoken of in holy terms in sports. The hallowed ground of Yankee Stadium. Hall of Fame is nothing but shrines dedicated to the gods where people will come and they will worship. How about television? People will dedicate their lives to certain TV shows. There are powerful narratives in television shows. Uh, Oprah. You know, stops her show and then goes on to start a new television network and all these things. Uh, USA Today talked about how this was a new religion. They even said, has Oprah started her own religion? Yes, Oprah has. She has her own gospel. It is self-empowerment and improvement. How to live your story, not by God's story, but your own story. How not to live to God's glory, but your own glory. It's not that Jesus is your savior, you save yourself by being spiritual, moral, and disciplined. And she puts out a magazine every single month. Who's on the cover every month? Oprah, every month, it's Oprah. When's on the cover this month? Oh, it's Oprah, every month, again. And when, if you talk about this, sometimes you get some evangelical housewives who are like, oh, there's nothing wrong with her. She is a pagan high priestess. Like, no, 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 she's nice and she gave away money. That's what pagan high priestesses do. They're nice. They give away money. It's a trick. Well, she believes in God. So do demons. Demons believe in God. 
It's been enough time, so I'm just going to go here. Okay, 9-11 happens, right? Uh, people, okay, people start to gather in stadiums in the sacred places, and Oprah does one of these, brings people together, and she holds a national church service to know God. That's what she does. She has a whole segment on her network devoted to spirit, okay? It's a demon. It's a demon. First John 4.1, test the spirits. Not every spirit works for God. If she called it demons, nobody would watch. So you call it spirit. How about the mall? How about the mall? Is the mall a temple? Yes. I mean, maybe not San Andreas Mall, but, you know. <laughs> but you go to a lot of places around our country, and they got nice malls. Our mall's trying to get nicer. They're putting a new movie theater in. I will now go see movies here and not drive to AG. Whatever. Okay. But, but it's where a lot of people will get their identity. You know, teenagers will walk around trying to find out who they want to be through clothing and accessories. You can hang out there all day. You can shop. You can meet. You can eat. You can even get a massage. Like, that's not weird or creepy in the middle of a mall getting a massage. Like, can you relax? And then you can buy a calendar in the mall to see how long you've been there because you don't know. Get glasses, skateboard, bowl in the mall. The mall is a temple. It becomes people's whole lives. The myth is consumerism. You are what you buy. Community is we all come together and we shop together. We get a slice of pizza together. We get a massage. <laughs> as weird as that is. And sacred ritual is we buy things, we carry these bags, we go into debt. It's religion. And the mall is just filled with different denominations. How about restaurants? Are they sacred places? Yes, restaurants are sacred places. Philippians 3.19, Paul says, some people's God is their stomach. Our nation invented the all-you-can-eat buffet. Some of you know how much you can eat, okay? Oh, look, you I got 139 shrimp and two sodas. That's what I can eat. And you, and you know. If you go to overseas and you ask for a Coke, you know what they're going to give you? A 12-ounce can. That's what they give you overseas. In America, they bring you a bucket and a straw and a scooter because you can't make it to your car after you drink the dumb thing. I mean, you go anywhere. I mean, larges are now our smalls, and anything you get now, it's like it's small on the bottom. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger just like us. you got to have a lifeguard because a kid may fall into it and drown, so you got to be careful. It is about consuming. People are starving to death, and America has an obesity problem. For some people, God is their stomach. You know, after 9-11, the Food Network started whole segments on comfort foods. Now, Jesus said, you know, he would send the comforter. We had no idea it was a piece of cake, right? Seriously. Don't go to Jesus. Go to your fridge. You open the door, the light will come on. You will see the gods of Hagen and dust right in front of you. <laughs> food is worship. People reward themselves with food. People will punish themselves with food. People identify with food. How about medication? Medication seem like a god, of course. Have you seen medication ads? At the end, they go really fast. They say all the crazy things at the end. You know, this is a side effect. You can grow hair on your eyeball. Your left nipple could explode. You can grow a horn out of your butt. You know? And everyone's like, yeah, but, but I could use that drug. And, and we buy them. Medications are presented like your savior today. A pharmaceutical company, he, they are your priest. They're the way to, and the pill is like the way to God. Not saying all medications are bad. I'm not saying that at all. But we have a culture who believes that heaven on earth is possible in a pill. You get the right medication. Are you not happy? Well, I'm not happy. Take this pill. Oh, great. Is your sex life bad? Could be better. Take this pill. Do you struggle with random thoughts? Yes. (laughs) Take this pill. Do you retain water? Well, well, yeah. It's everything. I mean, seriously. you, you You watch the ads. Do you have a stuffy nose? Are your children awake? You know? You're in hell. Our pill is going to get you to heaven. See, 
You have to understand, monism, all coming together, it is idolatry. You know, if you look at the world and you say, where is the money, the passion, the enthusiasm? That is the idolatry. And you may think it's not a big deal, but for most people it is identity and idolatry coming together. It is, and so we're identifying these things to help you understand the gospel. And part of this is understanding that you need to probably go home tonight and figure out where your money and your enthusiasm and your passion goes. Because we are all unceasing outpouring. And what are we unceasing outpouring towards? Because if we're going to help people to understand who Jesus is, we need to be unceasing outpouring towards him. Now, uh, why is it harmful? Why is idolatry harmful? Uh, Jonathan Edwards says, number one, if you idolize something, you must demonize something else. Okay, So that is number one. If you idolize a sports team, you must demonize a different sports team. If you idolize a political party, you've got to demonize the other. If you idolize a certain Bible translation, you've got to demonize other Bible translations. Mac versus PC, Star Trek, Star Wars, Democrat, Republican, it's all that stuff. You know, less failing, tastes great, whatever. Okay, Number two, people and things will fail as gods. People and things fail as gods. But when, when created things are put in the creator's place, they fail and fall. And sometimes we get so devastated because we think God himself failed when we're not worshiping God at all. See, when a Savior doesn't save, there needs to be a sacrifice because that Savior didn't save. Uh, this, uh, when you talk about film, this kind of makes me think of like the Hulk. You go from Eric Bana to Ed Norton to Mark Ruffalo trying to find the right Hulk Savior to save the dumb movie because they've got to find the right Hulk. Thirdly, you use people and you don't love them. When you, make, when you make things into an idol, you use people and you don't love them. People will violently defend their idols. If you try and take it away, look out. Like a, a dad who worships comfort. God forbid the kid who stands in front of that dad when he wants to have a conversation with him and the dad's watching TV because all hell is going to break loose. That's what's going to happen. Some churches will worship a building and a place becomes sacred. You know, Jesus, when he shows up and talks to the Jews, he says, I'm going to destroy this temple. You know what the religious, religious leader said? Then we'll destroy you. Because the temple had become that idol. We tend to worship and serve created things. Uh, First Baptist Church, Pacific Christian Church, Element Christian Church, we worship these buildings. Jesus is the mediator between God and man, not a building, not a pastor, not a set of songs. It is always Jesus. And number four, your idol requires sacrifice. Everything eventually takes a back seat to your idol you will sacrifice your marriage you'll sacrifice your job you'll sacrifice your life to an idol and eventually jesus is then even portrayed and you'll see this preached this way sometimes as the person who will give you your idol you worship jesus he will give you what you really want you worship money well jesus will give you money you worship health well jesus will give you health you worship marriage well jesus will give you a good marriage you worship joy well jesus will make you happy you worship family well jesus will give you a family we present the gospel today too many times in terms of idolatry. It is postmodern or post-postmodern, and it is paganism. Romans 1.25, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And this has always been around. But what you have to understand is it's getting worse today. Uh, if you look at the last hundred years in Europe, you'll see what kind of happened in Europe. It's kind of like, it's like a balloon with a and it kind of just slowly faded away. In America, it hasn't been like that. In America, the last generation and a half, it's like the boom just popped. And it's like boom, and everything is just 
changing today. Uh, and, this is, and this is the idea that Christianity is quickly dying in America. And I don't think that's necessarily such a bad thing, and I'll explain why by the time. Don't crucify me yet. Let me get there, and then we'll explain it. Uh, Christendom uh, in America was like this 500-year experiment. It included the Protestant Reformation. It includes the United States as we know it. Uh, it was where Christianity was the you know, predominant religion in America. Uh, Christendom provides a moral framework for everything. Uh, marriage is good. Marriage is for a man and a woman. Children are a blessing. Sex is for marriage. Sex outside of marriage is wrong. Belief in God is a good thing. Loving God also then included a commitment to your nation and your ancestors and your heritage. Now, uh, President Eisenhower comes along at one point in America's history and says that America, to survive, needs to have a belief in God and religion. Then he goes on to say he doesn't care what religion it is. That is the basic underpinning of Christendom. Okay, That is the underpinning of it. It's less about being saved for eternal life in the kingdom of God and more about living a moral life and building a good society and a great nation. And within Christendom, there actually are some people who are Christians, who actually are saved, but there are some that are not. And this is where you get the idea of civil religion. In civil religion, the religious structures support the fabric of the nation, and they define what is good and right and social order. And civil religion has led to some issues. In Matthew 7, 22 and 23, Jesus says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And so what Jesus does is he is distinguishing some things about true faith. And these things about true faith, number one, true faith is possessed. Okay, it is possessed. It's eternal, internal transformation. is being born again by the presence of Jesus and God's spirit. His external work on the cross, his blood shed for us, his work at atonement, it applies to us internally through the spirit of God. It is possessed. Secondly, it is profession. It's profession. We testify about Jesus. We talk about Jesus, the, that he is the creator and we are creation. We share what Jesus has done. We don't, you know, not that you can't hand your friends a band on CD, but we talk more about Jesus than we do about, hey, listen to this band. This band's amazing. We, you know, we, we talk about Jesus and everything. We talk about the one true God, that he has saved us, that he is distinct from his creation, but he stepped into it to save us. And it is also practiced. This is like we get baptized to show the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We partake in communion. We show the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. We go to church. We worship corporately. We also get married to honor God's intent and design and covenantal agreement. We, we do these things. And we also live our lives outside of these walls, much more importantly, in worship of who he is. But in Christendom, you have people who sort of sometimes practice faith. They might get baptized, but not really grow up into Christ. They may get married in the church, but not be devoted to Jesus' bride, the church. They show up for maybe Christmas and Easter, and they're born into civil religion. They're not born again into Jesus. And so you get cultural Christians. They say things like, well, I believe in God. I'm a good person. I was baptized. I was married in the church. We attend every so often. We believe in God. I was born into a Christian family. Those are the marks of civil religion that have nothing to do with Jesus, and they have everything to do with oneism. Okay? And so why would people kind of act like Christians when they aren't Christians? Because in, in America, for the longest time, we worshipped America. And just like everything else, uh, sometimes America has become the center of the idol worship. And in America, we will more bemoan the destruction of America more than the destruction of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're not the same. They're, they're really not. Uh, a, a lot of people who worship civil religion, America becomes like the new Israel. Um, the scriptures become like the Constitution. The president becomes the priest. I mean, maybe not this president, but, you know, this president becomes a priest. And, and the saved become citizens. It's, it's all a different take on what worship really is. And then under the covering of Christendom and civil religion, there are benefits associated for a very long time with calling yourself a Christian. 
I mean, for a very long time, it was, it was just unthinkable that we would ever consider a person to be president who wasn't a Bible-believing Christian. I mean, even when, I don't know if you guys knew this, but when JFK became president, I mean, there was a whole debate because he was Catholic. Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do about that Catholic? You know, that kind of thing. And in the last election, you have Barack Obama, who, you know, who claims to be a Christian. You look at the evidence, he's more of a socialist, you know, sold out to monism. He wouldn't use those words, but that's kind of the truth of, of what he says and what he practices. Then you have Mitt Romney on the other side, who is a professing Mormon church leader. What this does is it shows you civil religion is, is kind of popular in that kind of aspect, but evangelicals are no longer needed to provide a framework for nationhood. Our world is in transition, and has transitioned very quickly. Civil religion is pretty much dead in most places in our country, other than weddings or funerals where you've got a religious guy who does religious things, or in presidential elections. And so where it used to be beneficial to walk around and say, well, I'm a Christian, I go to this church, and in most places that no longer helps you. That can actually hurt you. It can get you called names. Uh, there are new studies out in major metropolitan areas like Seattle, San Francisco, Boston, Miami. It can actually hurt you to claim to be called a Christian. And if you look at the polling data, you may get the impression that America is still a Christian nation, okay? which, which means that you know, we've got to be able to define what a Christian actually is. I kind of did that a little bit, but I'll give you a little bit more of what that looks like. Now, for too many people, a Christian is, I believe in God, I was baptized, and I'm a good person. Well, that could be a cult. That could be Jehovah's Witnesses. That could be Mormonism. You know, what do we mean by that? Okay, there's a thing called a Bevington Quadra Angle, and they use this to express this, okay? this Bevington Quadra Angle. And this is what it looks like. These are four marks of what they would say a true Christian is. Number one, belief in the Bible is God's word. Okay? Belief in the Bible is God's word, important. Uh, belief in the cross. Jesus is God and he is man. He died in our place for our sins. Jesus is our Savior. We surrender everything to who he is. It is thirdly, it is conversion. We are not born Christians. We need to be born again through faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives us that faith. And then fourthly, it is activism. That is true faith demonstrated in Action. We live out the things that God calls us to. Truth, faith, true faith actually does something in our lives. Uh, evangelizing, giving, caring, participating in your local church, all of these kind of things. Loving your neighbors, the people around you. You know, these are all part of being active in that. So according to those four quadrants, and you start asking, well, what percentage of America is Christians? You get a totally different view on this. You know, those who actually possess and profess and practice their faith. Uh, again, God knows who, who are his, okay? We don't make that judgment in that, okay? But if you, you, know, you go out and you say, hey, who in America is a Christian? Most modern surveys will tell you it's 40 to 70% of America. Now, uh, again, I think Jesus in the church says he's letting the wheat and the tares grow together. But if you look at, you know, what percentage of Americans are Bible-believing, sin-repenting, evangelical, mission-sent Christians, and you look at, you know, 40 to 70% of America say they are, does that really square with where our culture is today? No, no, not at all. Just in case you're wondering, the answer is no, it, it doesn't. Uh, John Dickerson wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Recession. I think it's at the end of your notes as well. And he says the data, not just the profession, oh, I'm a Christian, the data, he says, more correctly says 7 to 8.9% of Americans are evangelicals. That is professing, possessing, and practicing. 7 to 8.9%. And if you deal with a younger generation, uh, or if you're in a major urban center, which Santa Maria is not, that's probably not a culture shock for you. If you surround yourself with Christians and only have Christian friends, that might be a little shocking. But what that means is evangelical Christianity is now a minority, minority in America. And we don't, we don't use, we can't use words like moral majority anymore because we're not really that moral and we're not the majority on either side of that. 
Now, on the other side of that, uh, you, what percentage of like people today in America are practicing an alternate lifestyle? And I'm not just talking homosexuality. It's like bisexuality, a few other things, open marriages, all that kind of stuff. Now, the latest poll in that, okay, is 64 6.4 to 7%. Okay? So you have evangelical Christianity, 7%. You know, it's like 8.9. And then the other side, 6.4 to 7%. There's not a lot of difference there. So you have like maybe 8% Christians, maybe 7% directly opposed. And in America, you have this 85% mass that sits in the middle. And they're being influenced one way or the other by these two groups. That's the world of America that we live in. And so it is very important that you and I must identify what we worship and the rituals around it, that we can see what people are worshiping and the rituals they surround themselves with those. Because Christendom in America is dying. Now, why do I think that's a good thing? Because I think when there are no longer benefits to professing a faith that you don't possess, I think we'll be able to see who the Christians really are. I think we will. And you won't, I mean, when you don't get elected to city council because of what church you attend, when you're not admired because you, you go to church on Sunday, people are going to start scrutinizing your life much more closely. I, I think that's probably a good thing because I think a lot of our lives could use a little, use a little bit of authenticity in them. Now, so I think what's actually starting to happen today, and you can see this from, from reports, is that if you say you're a Christian, you get labeled as an extremist. The Pentagon did this. You know, uh, you, know you may lose your tenured professorship. That happens. Stories are now going out about that. Uh, if, you, if your town has a cross somewhere in it, it probably comes down. You're going to be called bigoted. You're going to be called intolerant. You're, not going to, you're going to be called that you're not diverse. And I think what happens in the end is that less and less of those who are not Christians will be willing to call themselves Christians. And I think you'll no longer have like seeker-sensitive churches. You'll have just truer and truer pagans. And what that really means is we're going to be able to preach the gospel much more effectively if you understand the culture that is around you and the things that you see and their worship modes that they get involved in. I think we'll be able to stop fighting against a Christian subculture and firmly step into a culture who just needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll stop assuming certain things are true. And we will know what is actually true because people will just lay hold of what they actually hold is true. And again, I'm saddened okay, by the resurgence of monism and paganism and oneism. And it hurts my heart that, that this idea of Christendom in America is, is actually dying or dead. Uh, but I also have great hope for our future. Because, again, I, I think that when we strip away the garbage, we begin to preach the gospel much more effectively. And our goal should always be to take the timeless word of God and to bring it to the timely issues of our day. God's word doesn't change. And there are parts of the world that need to hear this all the time. And the parts of the world that need to hear it is every part of the world. And we must be able to clearly articulate it and understand what the resistance is to it and not get all mean and irritated. What you have to understand is that people are just unceasing outpouring. And so when they worship these things, it is just natural. It's like, um, you know, next week we're going to talk about Acts 17. When Paul goes into Athens and what he does is they're looking at all these things because they're unceasing outpouring. And he walks in and he says, you know what, you guys are outpouring to all these things. Let's talk about who the one true God really is. And the church explodes. It explodes because in the end, I think people, you know, we're made to have this, this thing where we're drawn to worship. It's who we are. We're unceasing outpouring. But I think that once our souls see who Jesus is, I think it makes it just go, that is who I need to worship. And so I, this is one of the reasons of necessity to preach and teach this class, because you are to possess what you profess. 
And there's no benefit to kidding yourself about it or what you really worship or what you believe. And so we want to give voice to what you are seeing in our culture, what you are hearing in our culture, and give you the tools to interpret that, especially what's happening, and not feel lost in any sense, but empowered by hope. Because even when things fall apart around you, there's still great hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is what we always hold up, is Jesus in all things. Because we are unceasing outpourers, and we need to outpour towards Jesus. Okay, so... Questions? Yes? Hebrews 9.27? Hebrews 9.27. 9.27. Is appointed for man once to die and after that to judgment. You're welcome. Anybody else? Shut you guys down. Yes, John. The what? Conversion? Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, do I repeat the question for the thing? Uh, what on the Bevington Quadrant angle? What is conversion? Did I put not put in your notes? I thought I put in your notes. Oh, okay. Uh, that that we that that's kind of the whole thing of possessed and and professing and practicing. That that kind of conversion is. Uh, entails those three things that uh, it is it is a faith that is possessed it is uh, Jesus's work on the cross that is internalized to his people it is profession where we testify about Jesus and his practice that we live lives that show that we are baptized we we share with our neighbors we talk about our our family lives change our work lives change our home life everything changes in light of that conversion the the possessed profession and the practice yes Mm-hmm. You can't call it New Age anymore because they don't call it New Age. Integrated spirituality. Well, I don't. I don't think you have to predict that it was happening. I think. I think it was actually happening then. As, as well as now, I, I think it is something that that is constantly happening. Okay. It's not it's not something that you see coming up. Uh, it is, I mean, again, when when Paul talked about you know pre modern, modern, and post modern, and you know now in kind of in our post post modern era, which is almost like a pre pre modern era. Because anyway, um, I I think that that that's just natural that that you go from this place to the next place, and that's where it is. And 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 I think that I, I think that what's happened to Christianity in America is that we have become so safe, and we like everything safe. And when we become safe and don't want anybody to get hurt, we start to become weaker and weaker. Because if you look at how God changed and grew his people, it was through hardships. And you know, when his people became too lax, God came in and sent his people off into Babylonian captivity. And they were probably in Babylonian captivity. They were probably more uh, serving God than they had anywhere else. And it was in a hardship place. And I think that, huh, it's, <laughs> seriously, yeah, I mean, it, and, and that's what it is. And, and, and I think that, I don't think we know how to live in a place of contentedness, of just living and loving Jesus. Because when we're contented long enough, we try to make sure our kids are always safe and they get so safe that they become our gods. And then they grow up, you know, and a society falls apart. 
because they, they've never learned that, you know, I need to work for the betterment of people around me. Even in Christianity, it's the same way. You know, what do I get out of this church? What does this church give me? I'll give you a perfect example. Um, Christy is like wringing her hands trying to find someone to help watch kids tonight. And she's going through, just, and we can't find anybody to help watch kids. I mean, maybe it's great y'all want to come and hear this, but I don't know. Maybe it's not. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to get people to serve. Because even in a lot of Christianity, it is serve me, give me, do for me. And, and again, you know, churches have trained people to do that. They really have. What does revival look like in one-ism? What, revival in one-ism? Yeah. Like, what is their revival? Or how do we revival? I think that you see the current revival in one-ism. Uh, it's like what we talked about in, in the first week. Uh, uh, you know, Kofi and on, you know, getting together Mikhail Gorbachev and Boris Strong and then getting pagan thinkers together and writing the Earth Charter, you know, which is, which is you know, they want it to be the new constitution for everybody under the UN. Uh, they make an arc to put it in. You know, they are doing some very religious overtones to these things to bring this about. That, that is the revival. It is, it is coming around full bore and full strong. Oh, that's us. Well, no, no, I thought you were asking that. Okay, now, I think revival in the church, uh, I think revival in the church is going to happen when the church starts to be persecuted. I think that's, that's when it happens. I, I don't think people in churches will understand, and again, sorry, I'm going to depress the snot out of you, but I don't think people in churches are really going to understand the call of Christ and what it means to really live that walk until it costs something. Because right now, Christianity doesn't cost anything. Christianity is easy. We present Christianity as Jesus is going to answer all your ills. Everything's going to be okay. You're going to be so much better. You're going to feel so good when you follow Jesus. Well, I don't feel good today. Oh, Jesus must have failed. Because we, we present him as an idol and not, not as God. And I think that uh, what happens in revival in the church is going to happen when the church starts to get persecuted again. And that's how it's going to take place. Because I think you have some very committed people in a whole lot of churches today. I think you have people that love Jesus, and I'm not discounting that. I think you have people who are very on fire for Jesus and want to see him lifted up. Uh, But I think that you have a much larger population in churches who are in it for themselves and what Jesus can give them and not what they... You know, like the whole saying, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Imagine that being a slogan by a president today. They would not get elected. They would not get elected. It is, ask what your country can do for you. Ask what your country can give you. That's, so what, oh, I got a bunch of things I said this. Yes. Okay, I, I don't, there is, should we be more, uh, an Eastern church model be, Okay. No. And I, and I think that's because I don't think you walk around just because I think the church needs to be woken up that you walk around and bash people in the head with a hammer. It's like, oh, I really need to follow Jesus. Bing! You know, oh, I'm going to... You don't, you don't pray that, you know, you're going to get persecuted. You know, you, you pray for the strength and righteousness to reach as many people as possible. And so what, what you see in, in the movement in a lot of Eastern churches, uh, a lot of churches in, in Africa and a lot of places in, in Muslim nations where they're being persecuted really hard is, is they start to thrive. Um, I think uh, one, one of the, and I, it wasn't Stalin, but one of the Russian dictators were, or one of their generals was so irritated because he said, he said uh, Christianity is like a nail. The harder you pound it, the deeper it goes. 
because they could not eradicate it, and they kept trying to eradicate it. And, and I, I don't think you necessarily run out and pray for persecution. I think you live your life for Christ and try and show people what it's supposed to look like, but I think in the end that that's how the arrival of the church ends up taking places in most places. Is. So no, I don't think you follow their motto, let's, let's get, be persecuted. And I don't think you run around with the victimhood mentality either. You know, oh, look what they're doing to us. I, I think, we're, I'm going to briefly mention this on, on Sunday, but I think that, you know, our goal is, is to be like the early church was. You know, they, they, they didn't run out and try and raise an army to, to kill Nero. You know, what they did is they always extended love back. It actually caused one Roman general, like, after he killed just a ton of Christians, he's like, I can't do it anymore. And he stopped, and he himself was killed because he stopped killing Christians. <laughs> but that's also cultural uh, America again the rugged individualism it's, it's still really ingrained and it's, and it's really hard to get people involved in house churches in America house church movement in America was supposed to be this really big thing and it's failed miserably uh, some of them work, I'm not saying there's not exceptions to the rule but most of them fail miserably because if you look, uh, people still like going to movies you get together in a large stadium. It's like, I mean, if I'm going to go to a movie, I want to go. I want to get there first so I get a good seat. But I want to go in a packed room because I, I, without the baby behind me. Um, but I want to, I want to be in the packed room with where they're like, ooh, ah, you know, when everybody's really excited because that, that's a fun movie experience. And, and Americans enjoy that communal experience. And so that is one of the reasons why you see in America churches do tend to become larger than other countries. Because we, we're individuals, we won't do a home church because it's too hard, but we will do the communal church experience because, hey, I'm together, but I can still be me. I can leave when I want. I don't like that message. I'm going to judge you. I'm God, and you didn't give me what I needed. You know, we, we get to do all those things. You can't do that in a house church. And so the movement isn't... That's right, we, we, we do church, but we also do gospel communities. So we stick in those, and then it's like, oh, curses, you tricked me. <laughs> Anybody else? If not, I'm just going to pray. It's been an hour and ten minutes. All right, let's pray. Father, again, we want to thank you for being a God who saves your people. And God, I want to thank you for making us a people who are unceasing outpouring. And as we do outpour with our lives, I ask that you would help us to honestly reflect what we are outpouring towards. Uh, that that all the things that, that we are giving precedence over you, that we would step back from those and put you in the proper place, that, that we can enjoy our sports and enjoy our movies and enjoy our music and enjoy all of these things, but they would not become idols and they would not take your place, that we'd be a people who, who profess who you are, that we possess the faith that we profess and that we practice it, that we act upon it, that we live lives that fully honor you as our great God, and that stepping into these situations, we would understand our culture better and the things that they are worshiping, and quite honestly, many times the things that we ourselves are worshiping, and we'd be able to bring the light of your gospel there, that we would lift you up and who you are, our great God who has come to save his people, who has loved us, who has stepped into the mess of our sin and pulled us out the other side so that we could be free, a people to freely worship you and be unceasing, outpouring, all in the place it's supposed to be. And we ask that in your son's great and good name. Amen.